out there bust them crackings. I almost feel sorry for them serpents we've been tracking. Battle stations, boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Kraken Busters, a walk through the history of the U.S. sea monster conflict of the 1940s and 1950s. This is episode two, This Might Be a Problem, 1945. I'm Keith Billy. Okay, first I guess I need to open with a really embarrassing correction. At one point in last week's episode, I railed against a historically inaccurate movie about the sea monster conflict starring Mark Wahlberg. And of course, as soon as I posted the episode, several of my eagle-eared listeners discreetly got in touch with me to point out that the movie, 2009's Tentacles on Steel, actually starred Donnie Wahlberg. I made the uh, classic Wahlberg mix-up. It's a bonehead move, and I'm sorry, I will not make that mistake again. That said, um, I, do, I welcome your corrections, or thoughts, or what have you. Anyway, last week we kicked things off by looking at the murky beginnings of the sea creature crisis. As World War II was moving towards its conclusion, small ships began disappearing off the U.S. Pacific coast and the Yakima Head Lighthouse in Oregon was mysteriously destroyed. The Coast Guard and then the Office of Naval Intelligence investigated, but were so convinced that the Japanese must be involved that they never came close to seeing what was right in front of them. And then a giant octopus was sighted off of Mexico, and a bunch of American newspapermen who didn't speak Spanish thought that El Pulpo was the thing's name. This week, things will get a lot more tense and hectic, and we will meet another of the major sea creatures from the conflict, the ever-popular Black Jack Kraken. Through 1944 and the first half of 1945, the U.S. Navy's involvement with what would later be revealed as the sea creature crisis was still limited to the ONI investigation and some high-level decision-making by a few top admirals. The actual fleet at sea remained overwhelmingly focused on the war, particularly the war in the Pacific. The battle for the Philippines continued, and the invasions of the islands of Iwo Jima in February and March, and Okinawa in April and June of 1945, were undertaken at great effort as American forces closed in on the Japanese home islands. Additionally, air bases established on recently captured islands such as Saipan and Tinian allowed for an ever-escalating campaign of aerial bombardment of Japanese cities. Aside from the battle fleets at the front lines, American operations in the Pacific also required enormous logistical support by sea, with networks of convoys moving supplies from the U.S. West Coast to Hawaii, Australia, Midway, and literally hundreds of other islands and bases uh, and this included a network of tender ships that serviced the main battle fleets. Working on operational scales just absolutely unprecedented in human history, the American naval effort in 1945 was an enormous, stupendously complicated machine um, entirely focused on the single purpose of defeating the Empire of Japan with no resources or attention devoted by the main body of the Navy to the disappearances of a few small boats in the rear area. 
The supply convoy that left Pearl Harbor on July 16, 1945, was entirely typical of a minor late war logistical operation. Four cargo ships set out carrying aviation fuel, spare parts, and mundane supplies like food and radio gear for the airbase on Saipan. They were escorted by a pair of old destroyers, the USS Dahlgren and the USS Cook. The escorts were considered more or less pro forma, just following standard procedure, since the area between Hawaii and Saipan was essentially the rear, and anyway, the Imperial Japanese fleet was by this point all but out of the war for lack of fuel. The crews of the Dahlgren and the Cook expected a monotonous cruise, spent standing watch looking out for non-existent threats, with weather being the only conceivable thing to worry about. The merchant crews on the cargo ships expected the same. They were all wrong. Four days out from Pearl Harbor, lookouts on board the Dahlgren observed an odd royal on the ocean surface just off the bow of the SS Palmer, one of the cargo ships in the convoy. The captain of the Dahlgren, Lieutenant Commander Ed Dudek, approached to investigate, expecting it to be nothing. Dudek and the Dahlgren's lookouts and bridge crew were startled to see somewhere between six and eight tentacles, quote, black as ink and thick as goddamn bridge cables, end quote, erupt from the water and sweep several Palmer crew members overboard and then latch onto the bow of the cargo ship, buckling the hull. Lieutenant Rich Trumbull, a Dahlgren officer looking from the ship's bridge wing, reported that he saw a huge black squid at least the size of a city bus extending down into the depths from the Palmer's bow. Dudek brought the Dahlgren to general quarters and evaluated his options, which were limited. The ship's primary armaments were its deck cannons and torpedoes, neither of which could be used safely against something right next to the hull of a ship it was trying to protect. The same problem held true for the Dahlgren's anti-submarine weapons, depth charges, which would be as hazardous to the Palmer as to the creature afflicting it if dropped so close and set to explode near the surface. Dudek ordered the ship's forward 50 caliber machine gun emplacements to rake the creature and quickly saw that they had little effect. Desperate, as the Palmer's bow was buckling and near to rupture under the press of the tentacles, Dudek maneuvered the Dahlgren back from the Palmer, signaled his intentions to the Cook, the other destroyer guarding the convoy, and deftly maneuvered his ship forward at flank speed to ram the squid while just missing the Palmer. The squid was dislodged, but with cost. Dahlgren's bow was damaged, and Dudek was knocked unconscious in the impact. Lieutenant Trumbull took the con, and coordinating with Lieutenant Commander Curtis Sparhawk on the Cook, managed to drive the squid away with depth charges. During this latter operation, one of the Dahlgren's machine gunners shouted, and pardon my language here, quote, hey, fuck you, Blackjack Kraken, end quote, at the creature. This, uh, this nickname quickly gained currency among the officers and crew of the Dahlgren, and upon the ship's return to Pearl Harbor, among the press and then just society at large. After the creature's escape, it was clear that neither the Dahlgren or the Palmer were seaworthy enough to complete the convoy run, particularly with an unknown risk of further attacks by the creature. So the convoy reversed course for Pearl Harbor, returning to port on July 25th. 
ServPAC, the Navy Command Division for convoys and their escorts operating in the Pacific, initially rejected the reports submitted by Dudek, Trumbull, Sparhawk, and other involved officers, as did the overall Naval Command Department for the Pacific. These officers were subjected to multiple rigorous debriefing sessions, bordering on interrogations, and threatened with court-martial. But their stories hung together and were buttressed by testimony from crew members on the Dahlgren, the Cook, and the Palmer. And in the end, a series of photographs taken by an enterprising Dahlgren signalman to document the action led the Navy to conclude that the ships had indeed been attacked by and then driven off a giant squid. In 1953, Rich Trumbull talked to the Federal Conflict Documentation Project, or FCDP, about the Dahlgren incident and its aftermath. Quote, It was the most frustrating thing in the world to go through this terrible experience with the attack on the Dahlgren, feel like we'd somehow triumphed heroically against the odds, made it safely back to Pearl Harbor, and then splatter into this stone wall of disbelief. Here and now, I can see why they didn't believe us. Of course they didn't want to believe us. They had plenty to worry about with the war, and if you weren't there, the stories we were telling must have sounded crazy. I get that now. But I sure as heck didn't then. I got pretty hot, yelling back at those shorebound sons of bitches who were calling us liars. For a while, their theory was that Captain Dudick had been drinking on duty, maybe also the captain of the Palmer, and that they'd collided, and then somehow the entire convoy had been convinced to cook up a crazy story to cover it up. And this was garbage. Damn insulting garbage. But they stuck to it, I guess because it was easier to believe than what we were telling them. Uh, y you have to remember at this point, I was still pretty much just a kid. I mean, I was a legal adult and a commissioned officer and all, but I was just 24 and hot-headed as hell. So I pounded on that table in that Pearl Harbor basement over and over and called him a bunch of dumb sons of bitches. I couldn't not get mad thinking about Captain Dudek laying there on the floor of the bridge with blood streaming out of his ears after the collision with the squid that ripped it loose from the Palmer's bow and then hear these bastards call him a drunk and call me a liar. Or, I couldn't handle the fact that they were just ignoring the rage and the fear that I'd felt up on the Dahlgren's bridge wing, looking down and seeing this gigantic, hateful eye set in a jet-black body staring back up at me. They were denying the pain I'd felt when I watched a bunch of men get swept off the Palmer and into the ocean. So yeah, I got mad, and things got pretty tense. For a while, it looked like I was actually going to get arrested and court-martialed. But that eased up when everyone's stories kept hanging together and the physical inspection of the ships backed this up. And then, of course, what really put us over the top were the pictures that a sailor on the Dahlgren took. They were blurry and indistinct, but they were also way more involved than something we could have cooked up on the spur of the moment to cover up for a drunk captain. So slowly, I moved from the hostile witness being interrogated to the expert veteran being debriefed, which was a lot better and I like to think that as some time went on, I did some good in that role, although that took a while. Looking back, I can think of an argument that I wish had occurred to me during those first interrogation stages. Men have been going to sea for thousands of years, and all that time we've been afraid of sea monsters. Maybe we should have thought about the possibility that they hadn't been wrong and superstitious that whole time. 
end quote. And uh, by the way, you are going to want to remember the name Rich Trumbull. Anyway, the officers of all ships involved were sworn to secrecy and forced to sign non-disclosure statements, and the crews were ordered not to talk. But word got out quickly anyway, and within a few days, all of Pearl Harbor was talking about Black Jack Kraken and conniving to see the Palmer in dry dock and marvel at her crumpled bow. Determined to prevent a panic that would disrupt the ongoing drive towards Japan, the uh, Commander-in-Chief Pacific, Chester Nimitz, issued stern penalties for any naval personnel who spoke to the press about the attack. And uh, I want to take a quick aside here to talk about the naval command structure, since this is a term I'll be using a lot. Um, this will just take a second. In the American naval command structure of the 40s, the commander-in-chief of the Pacific Fleet was the central figure in determining the conduct of the war in the Pacific, following, of course, broad guidance from the president, the chief of naval operations, and the secretary of the Navy, which later the secretary of defense after the 1947 National Security Act. Anyway, SINCPAC was the uh, Navy jargon acronym for that office and it was used interchangeably for the man holding the office, the office itself, and the large bureaucratic slash staff complex that surrounded the office, both physically and metaphorically. I'm gonna follow in this usage throughout this work, so just know if I say sync pack, I kind of mean the man, the office, and the complex all at the same time. Anyway, after Sinkpak Nimitz's gag order, the military governor of Hawaii followed by, by ordering a total press blackout, threatening instant incarceration for any journalist reporting on the matter. These efforts managed to keep the story out of the stateside newspapers, but did little to prevent the person-to-person -person spread through the Navy grapevine. This fraught situation held through July and the start of August 1945 as the war drew to its close. Even in the Navy in the Pacific, the dropping of atomic bombs on two Japanese cities and subsequent Japanese surrender was enough to overshadow most talk about sea monsters for a few weeks. The end of the war brought jubilation and relief to the forces in the Pacific, most of whom had been fearfully wondering what would happen to them during the seen-as-inevitable invasion of the Japanese home islands. An overarching mood of weariness, fear, and dread, which had made it easy for gossip about sea monsters to fester, gave way to relief and happiness as sailors, soldiers, and marines began wondering what the plans for demobilization would be. Whatever limited control Nimitz and the Navy had been able to exert over the sailors' gossip, they were powerless to prevent the sea monsters themselves from announcing themselves. In late August, still amid the fumes of the celebrations of VJ Day, the octopus that the newspapers had previously dubbed El Pulpo after its appearance near Mexico was sighted several times in waters west of San Diego. On one of these occasions, a photographer from the San Diego Union took a series of pictures that captured the octopus menacing a Coast Guard vessel. While the ship was able to maneuver away without damage, the publication of the images, driving home the immense scale of the creature, triggered an abrupt negative shift in the public mood. On the west coast at least, particularly in California, the mood quickly moved from elation to discomfort to pockets of something resembling mass hysteria 
as the pictures and the relaxation of wartime discipline prompted the wider spread of naval gossip about the Palmer incident. This wave of coastal panic lasted throughout September of 1945, with sighting reports flooding into the Navy, the Coast Guard, and the local police departments in coastal municipalities. In Washington, President Harry Truman, who had taken office in April of 1945 after the abrupt death of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was initially bemused by the burst, then irritated by what he saw as an irrational overreaction to photographs that, in his judgment, had obviously been faked. He was pressured by aides to address the nation and calm their fears. But Truman resisted, not wanting to lend dignity and credence to what he was convinced was a newspaper stunt. As the panic lasted through September, though, it became clear that something needed to be done. Disruption continued throughout coastal California, with crowds demanding action in Los Angeles and San Diego. Some West Coast shipping concerns were hesitant to send ships to sea, threatening to cause chaos in the just beginning effort to demobilize the enormous American military presence scattered throughout the Pacific. To calm the near hysteria, President Truman finally, in early October, ordered the Navy to make a visible gesture to calm public nerves. In response, on October 3, 1945, Admiral Nimitz ordered Operation Clean Sweep. In Clean Sweep, a task force of the heavy cruisers USS Louisville and Wichita, along with eight destroyers, would sail from San Diego, quote, to seek out and engage any unusual hazards to maritime traffic, end quote. Privately, Nimitz and his staff were doubtful that the Clean Sweep force would find anything, or even that there was necessarily anything to find, even if the Palmer and the Dahlgren truly had been attacked by a giant squid west of Hawaii, there was no reason to actually believe that there was a giant octopus off of San Diego, the reasoning went. From the point of view of the SyncPak operations staff, the main purpose of the mission was simply to give the public a reassuring show. To this end, the press was invited to watch the force's departure and a reporter and photographer were invited to sail on the Louisville as the personal guests of Force Commander Rear Admiral Torvald Jensen. In one small hedge to the possibility that the Clean Sweep Force might encounter trouble, SyncPak operations did take the extra step of detaching Rich Trumbull and his fellow officer Jorge Estrada from the still laid up Dahlgren and attached them to Jensen's staff on the Wichita on the theory that if there were sea monsters to fight, these two men had the closest thing to actual combat experience. Unlike the rest of the Clean Sweep pageantry, this wrinkle was kept hidden from the press. Clean Sweep Force left San Diego on the morning of October 3rd to great fanfare and subsequent news coverage that exceeded the Navy's wildest hopes. The head of the San Diego Longshoremen's Union summed up the public reaction when he told the LA Times that he and his workers felt a lot better about their prospects, quote, now that we know that the same Navy that kicked the uh, redacteds butts is out there taking the fight to whatever these sea beasties are, end quote. The force conducted ladder pattern searches in an ever-widening area of the sea west of San Diego using shipboard lookouts and air searches to hunt for El Pulpo. The embedded reporter and photographer wired back daily stories of the brave men using state-of-the-art equipment to hunt for the menace of the deep. 
But as six weeks of searching passed with no contact, the stories lost their urgency and the public lost interest. Nothing was found to fight. Possibly, whispered members of SyncPack operations, there had never been anything out there to fight. Either way, the public was reassured. As far as the Navy and the President were concerned, by being a boring anticlimax, Operation Clean Sweep had been a roaring success. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Please join me next week as the Navy comes to realize that this isn't some little thing that they can just sweep under the rug. It's hard to sweep the wreckage of the Panama Canal under a rug. One last thing, um, if you are enjoying this, I really would like to ask you to just tell one person in your life about it. This is a, you know, a word of mouth strategy I'm borrowing from another history podcaster whose work I admire. Um, surely you know somebody who is into naval history or sea monsters. Um, you know, they watch all those mythical movies about the sea monster conflict and you want to get them the right idea. Just tell one person for me. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. Boys, get out there and bust them crackings. Dee 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 dee.